I think we'll begin. Uh, welcome to the latest in LSE's Thinking Like a Social Scientist lecture series. My name's George Lawson. I'm a lecturer in the International Relations Department. And it's a great pleasure to welcome a good friend and colleague here today, uh, Professor Mick Cox. Um, those who don't know Mick, and I'm sure there are one or two, but probably not very many in this room who don't know Mick, he's Professor of International Relations in the department here. He's also Director of LSE Ideas, which is a Centre of International Affairs here at LSE. Uh, he's also a big Arsenal fan, uh, so he's in a very good mood today. Very good mood. Um, and he's, I thought he might be talking about his favourite subject, which is, of course, the continued success of Arsenal, but it's not. It's his second favourite subject, uh, which is the impact of the Cold War on how we think about international relations and also about social scientific issues more generally. I think Mick is going to do half an hour, 35 minutes, and leave us a quarter of an hour or so for questions. So please uh, welcome Mick. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, George, and I'm very pleased to be part of this uh, very successful uh, series. Uh, firstly, just to say some thanks. Firstly, I think to, to Professor Sarah Worthington here at the LSE, I think, who's been instrumental in driving this uh, particular initiative, and I think it's all to be welcome. Uh, we don't want to be sitting in our little ghettos. Um, we do want to try and create the broadest community of scholars here, and I think this is part of the initiative to do that. And that's, by the way, going to be continued we're in the LSE with our new LSE 100, which will be for first-year students, where we will be talking to all, many of the first-year students across the range of disciplines. Uh, secondly, a personal thanks, too, to two of my, what I call, Cold War inspirations. Um, Fred Halliday, a very old friend, a colleague here for many years, a great uh, writer on the Cold War and theorizing the Cold War. He's now living in Barcelona, but we still see him. I had many an argument with Fred uh, many years ago uh, on the nature of the Cold War, what it, what it meant. Um, and I'd also like to pay uh, due to my good colleague who's the co-director in the centre that I helped direct uh, ideas here, uh, Professor Arnie Westad. Uh, Arnie is a proper historian. Uh, I, I'm an historian, Monquet, but Arnie, I think, has done as much as anybody to think about the Cold War, and in particular to globalise the thinking about the Cold War, particularly in the Third World. And he's going to be one of the editors of the new Cambridge History on the Cold War, which I think is going to be really a marvellous set of volumes on it. And, and finally, I'd like to thank uh, Sage Publishers, who are now sponsoring uh, the lectures. I don't know if there's a direct connection between me giving the first lecture and Sage now sponsoring us. I'd like to think there is, but I'm, I'm certain that there isn't. But anyway, thanks to Sage Publishers for, for, for giving some backing to this lecture series. Let me begin with the historical subject, the, uh, the Cold War, and make the pretty obvious uh, generalization uh, that the Cold War has uh, of necessity, given its importance and longevity and significance, it's been a, a subject of intense historical uh, debate. And I've just sort of outlined what I think have been some of the ten great debates within, his, within the historical profession about that. And none of these are really resolved issues either. Um, firstly, there's still a debate ongoing about when it began. Uh, I, I did a quick Google on thinking about different titles about the origins of the Cold War. And there's still not very much. There is some overall consensus that most people think it began somewhere about 1947. However, you will find a, a literature out there which sort of says really that if you're going to date the origins of the Cold War, you really have to date it back to the Russian Revolution itself in 1917. And that if you start in 1947, it is really too short term. You've got to take the, the origins, not therefore as a post-Second World War phenomenon, 
but something which really is coterminous with the emergence of a new revolutionary system uh, within, the, within the world order. Now, that, of course, will get us into all kinds of problems about definitions, but nonetheless, there, there, is, there is that uh, ongoing discussion about the origins in terms of when it began. You'd also be surprised to hear, and I'm, I've, I've done, I did a review article on this several years ago, um, in the last century, <laughs> almost, it feels like that. When did it actually end? Now, of course, the, the common sense answer to that very quickly is it ended in 1989. We all know it ended in 1989 because we had a lot of conferences uh, last year um, celebrating or commemorating, or in some cases commiserating, um, with what happened 20 years ago in 1989. So, of course, this re reaffirms the view that this uh, great uh, global conflict ended in in 1989. Not so. Not so. Go back and look in the historical literature on this, you will find different ways of thinking about what you mean by the Cold War and when you therefore think it ended. So there is a view that it ended with the death of Mr. J.V. Stalin in March 1953. Thereafter, it wasn't the same kind of Cold War once he, he departed the stage of history, unmourned. Um, some would even argue it ended in 1956 with the Hungarian Revolution and the acceptance uh, by the West effectively of the division of Europe. Uh, there was no more talk of liberating the East. It was a kind of an acceptance of the status quo and the, of a division of Europe. Um, I have a colleague in the United States uh, who was is absolutely certain it began in 1962. It ended in 1962, rather, with the, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this, in a sense, confirmed that there would never be a nuclear war, but at the same time both sides would accept that uh, their, their own particular spheres of influence were accepted. And then after that, the intense ideological dimension of the Cold War declined. It simply became a normal kind of state-to-state -state conflict. The fundamentals of the relationship have been changed by fear of nuclear weapons, which came so close to destroying us all. I have about at least four or five books on my heaving shelves of the end of the Cold War that it ended in 1972 with the first arms control agreements between the Soviet Union and the United States and Ostpolitik, the, the moving together of the two Germanys, détente, the Helsinki process which finally came to fruition in 1975. This stabilized and therefore took the sting out of the Cold War. And of course, what also happened in the 1970s, which some would say ended the, the Cold War as a global Cold War, is where China came in from the cold. This, in a sense, re redefined the nature of this relationship. In other words, what a lot of historians have argued is that um, we should think not of a, the end of the Cold War as a, an event, but as a process, which in the end culminated in 1989, at the end of a series of other significant changes from the death of Stalin through to the coming in from the cold of China. And even, even then, some would argue, well, something happened in 1989 called the end of the Cold War in Europe, but the USSR still persisted as a single state for another two years. And therefore, we can't talk of the fundamental, the, uh, the ultimate end of the, of the conflict between East and West, between the two superpowers, because the USSR remained something like a superpower until 1991. So when it began as a subject of some dispute or some discussion, and certainly when it ended, uh, has been thought about by historians in more than just thinking about and focusing only on 1989. There's also been a whole debate amongst historians, and it's quite amazing, you think historians are kind of nice neutral people who only believe in the facts, but actually there's been an enormous amount of moralism in the discussion about the, about the Cold War. In other words, which of the two sides was more responsible? Uh, obviously, 
both sides wanted to proclaim their peaceful intentions and therefore wanted to prove it was the other side that began it. And so therefore you will also find in the debate about the Cold War an enormous literature really which is infused with the moralism about historical responsibility. Um, so it isn't just an objectively defined subject, it is one about trying to find who started it when uh, and where and how. And of course, on the Western side, the official story was it was down to the Soviet Union and Soviet expansionism. And of course, on the more critical side and the Soviet side, the argument is that essentially it is down to American expansionism and American power. And it's, it's American who really began and continued and had a vested interest in the Cold War. There's also a, another kind of question about the question of inevitability. Did it have to happen? Was it inevitable? Was it overdetermined by a series of structural features? Or was it accidental, avoidable? There's also a very interesting debate, and again, a, an enormous literature in, 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 uh, amongst Cold War historians, about the precise relationship between the Cold War as a conflict of social systems, if we want to define the Cold War in that particular way, and the intersection between the conflict and the nuclear revolution, which of course found its ultimate fruition uh, with, the, with the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. In other words, what's the relationship between the conflict between the USSR, the USA, the West, the East, the capitalist world, the non-capitalist world? What's the relationship between that conflict and this other dimension, which of course arose separately in some senses from the Cold War, because after all, Nuclear weapons were first invented, ultimately, to, to, to wage war on the Axis powers, on Japan and Germany. What's the relationship between that and the nuclear revolution? And of course, there is, there is a view, which has been strongly held by at least some critical writers on the Cold War, that atomic weapons played an enormous role in the Cold War, but they played a very paradoxical and you might almost say dual role, a kind of Janus face of nuclear weapons. On the one hand, there is a literature um, going back to a very famous American historian called Gerald Perovitz, writing in the 1960s, called Atomic Diplomacy. And his argument, very simply stated, is the dropping of the bombs on, on Japan at the end of World War II wasn't, the, wasn't just the last act of World War II, it was the first act of the Cold War. It was designed as much to deter and intimidate the Russians as it was to take Japan out of the war. And then the United States held on to its nuclear monopoly, did not want to share those nuclear secrets with others or internationalize those through the United Nations or an emerging international order. And in that way, not only did the United States therefore bear the greatest responsibility, but at the same time, atomic weapons themselves become a major cause, indeed in Alperovitz's argument, become almost the central cause of, of creating the insecurities which forced the Soviet Union to act in ways it, which it did, and then, of course, bringing the Cold War to, to fruition in 47. The Janus face, the double aspect of, of nuclear weapons, of course, is that many would also argue the other side of nuclear weapons, namely that nuclear weapons kept the Cold War cold. Uh, Mr. Stature always great historian, if not of Germany, at least of the Soviet Union, uh, made, made the point uh, when, when making uh, some polemic against uh, some peace activist in the late 1970s that if it hadn't been for nuclear weapons, we would have had World War III. Uh, and again, she put it in her typically Thatcher way, but nonetheless that uh, represented a general view about the role of nuclear weapons. So there was a dual aspect of, of nuclear weapons, which again has been much examined. There's also the question of the geography of the Cold War. Where did it begin? Where was it most intense? And here again, there has been a, I wouldn't say a, a, a historical divide, but I think there's been an historical different ways of thinking about it. 
Whereas those who have focused most on Europe have talked to the Cold War essentially as a European phenomenon. It therefore is about Yalta, it is about the division of Europe, the division of Germany, the Marshall Plan in 1948, the building of NATO in 1949, and then the rearming of NATO following the Korean War of 1950. And in some sense, of course, it's the privileging of Europe as the center of the Cold War. And of course, the United States did privilege Europe in terms of the numbers of troops it had permanently stationed in Europe, 375,000 by 1980s, and of course, the number of nuclear weapons that were held in Europe, and largely, by the way, under American control. But again, as I think Arnie Westad has shown, to think of the Cold War primarily or only as a European phenomenon, of course, forgets the fact that it was a global phenomenon and in a sense was as much uh, significant uh, for the Third World, indeed for Arnie Westad, indeed the, the real area of the Cold War really was the Third World. In some sense, Europe became stable because of the Cold War. The Third World became the site of interventions by both, uh, by both, by both superpowers and, and the East and the West. And not many people died in Europe as a result of the Cold War, but 25 million died in what is sometimes patronizingly called the periphery in the Cold War. There's also a larger debate amongst historians, and I'll take this up more when I think about social sciences, that what are the drivers of the Cold War? What keeps the thing going? Is it inherent in the international system? Uh, conflict, after all, is inherent in the international system, at least according to one school of IR, in the realism. Or was it driven by internal factors? And again, you'll find that sometimes the stories have been pretty deeply divided. And this is where Fred Halliday, I think, had a wonderful, but I think, if I might say so, deeply inaccurate view about my own views on this. But basically, Fred's argument was that there are those who kind of see the Cold War as an international phenomenon, driven by international forces and factors, and therefore see it as a global phenomenon in an IR way. And there are those, presumably like me and Mary Calder and others, who kind of look at it as an internally driven issue. Um, to do with domestic social groups, the role of the military-industrial complex, uh, the, the ways in which one sometimes seeks the balance, the, the, the relationship between the domestic and the, and the, and, and the international. And again, that, that particular historical debate, I don't think, has been, has been forever ever resolved. Um, and there's, of course, another side to this, of course, how did the Cold War shape domestic politics? I mean, you know, there are some pretty silly divisions in the, in the world in which we live as academics between the international and the domestic. But clearly, when you look at the domestic politics of the West, the domestic politics of the East, the domestic politics of China, it's clearly been shaped by the Cold War. I mean, one can't, for instance, understand the political economy of America after 1948 and 49 without thinking of the Cold War and its consequences domestically, both on the political economy, on the political culture, and even on the existence of human rights and the nature of the political system. McCarthyism, which of course had such a big impact on the United States after 1949 and 1950, was driven, of course, by external factors as much by domestic. And indeed, the domestic in turn had an enormous impact on the way the Cold War was then conducted uh, as an external or as a foreign policy. In other words, the domestic and the international almost collapsed together when you start thinking about the, about the Cold War. Uh, foreign policy, in a sense, does become domestic politics, and domestic politics also becomes international relations. And finally, of course, when thinking about this, the way historians have thought about this very quickly, of course, historians, of course, have been very interested, inevitably, in some of the key turning points in the Cold War. What was the most important turning point in the Cold War? Everybody loves a key turning point. 
Um, was it the moment in 1947 when Harry Truman went before Congress to announce the Truman Doctrine, which in a sense gave ideological meaning to the Cold War? Um, did it happen because the Russians then tried to get the West out of West Berlin in 1948 or 49? Was it significantly altered? Was this the turning point when the Chinese Revolution occurred in 1949 or when the Russians in the same year broke the atomic monopoly of the Americans. John Gaddis, a very famous American historian, more on the conservative side of this debate, actually argues that the real turning point of the Cold War was none of those things. It was the Korean War of 1950, because this both globalized, Asianized, and militarized the Cold War. And only at that point can we really say the key turning point Within this, within, this particular, within this particular system. And on and on and on it goes for people finding their defined most important key turning points. And I suppose the last, one of the last I could go on, of course, but I don't want to sort of overburden the introduction, you know, I suppose is to say, well, how the hell did we survive it? Um, it's very easy. I'm looking around the average age in this audience. There are some of you who know about the Cold War. Um, I was born, actually, on the same day as the Truman Doctrine was announced, so that tells you how old I am. Um, 1947, there you go, 62 and a bit. Um, but it is an interesting question, how do we survive it? Um, it is easy now to cast our eyes back and say, well, it you know, took the form it did, that was an inevitable process. Unfortunate that 25 million people died in the third world, but at least we didn't have a nuclear war. Well, looking back through the historical records, and we knew it then and we know it even more now, there were certain moments in time where it could have gone over the top. Uh, we survived it. Um, you know, during the periods of the Korean War, for instance, in the early period of the Korean War, Harry Truman went into some very deep and intense discussions with his military about the potential and possible use of nuclear weapons, and not only against North Korea, but against China. Uh, this, of course, put the fear of God up. The Brits actually was immediately onto a plane over to Washington to tell the Americans this was not a very good thing to do. Those were in the days, by the way, when the British used to disagree with the Americans. Um, 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I can even remember going on my first demonstration thereabouts in 1962. Some people said, hands off Cuba. Um, some people like myself are more worried about not reaching the age of 17. Um, but the Cuban Missile Crisis was, as they say, a damn close-run thing. And the more we look into the historical record, the more close-run actually it becomes. Uh, because certain advice, if it had been taken by President Kennedy at that time, if he had taken certain kinds of advice, as opposed to other kinds of advice, we may have ended up. We may have ended up with a nuclear exchange, which may have had some consequences. And even as late as 19, the early 1980s, we, we now know from the historical record how worried the Russians were, how worried Moscow was by the, by the Reagan rhetoric uh, on the evil empire, the whole build-up which was going on on the U.S. side, which began under Carter, but continued under Reagan and given particular historical definitions. So. We survived it, and that, I think, is a, is, a, is, a, is a critical issue. So this has been a subject of enormous historical and intense debate for many years. And it's also been, in a, the other thing to say, I, I just want to add this other point, it's been an extraordinarily ideologically divisive discussion as well amongst historians. Um, it's been a very politicized debate, inevitably so. The idea that somehow or another you can park the Cold War and discuss it as some objective thing you know, when 25 million people die in the third world as a result of coup d'etats in the third world, the worst coup d'etat, the bloodiest coup d'etat in Indonesia in 1965, three quarters of a million dead as a direct result of the Cold War, you know, the millions who died in the Vietnam War, you know, this is bound to create ideological division 
and, and no more, actually, no more divisive than it was in the United States in the 1960s. Uh, for those of us who could, would call ourselves the children of 1968 uh, can remember very well that in some senses 1968 as an event, which of course closed down the LSE for a few weeks or even months, that was very much a direct product of the Cold War. That was very much a direct product of the Cold War and the debates within the West, within Europe, within the United States about the meanings of the Cold War and about the meanings of the Vietnam War and about the meanings of who was driving that Cold War. And of course in the United States it, it caused an enormous divide within the historical profession and the emergence of a new radical, new left way of thinking about the causes of the Cold War and, and its consequences and, and shattered the consensus that America was always right and that America was in a sense always the innocent within, 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 the, within the wider uh, conflict. Yet, at the end of the day, it ended. And I'll date it, if you like, to 1989. I'll be, I'll be very conventional uh, on this. It ended suddenly, uh, unexpectedly. Now, of course, to say it ended, and, and to say that 1989, in a sense, marks the end of the Cold War, as, as George and myself, and uh, another colleague called Chris Ambrose, who we just brought out a book on 1989, its kind of largest significance. Of course, there were many 1989s. We, there were many 1989s. Remember, June the 4th was the first elections in Poland on the same day the tanks were rolling across Tiananmen Square. Um, you know, this, so what was 1989 for Europe, what was 1989 for Poland, or, or later, of course, November, for, for Germany, and the opening up of the Hungarian-Austrian border earlier on, meant something very different. And of course, it didn't lead either to the elimination of all communist states. You know, there, are, there were still some formerly communist states which survived 1989. I mean, one pretty obvious one was China, uh, and another was, was North uh, Korea. So even the way we think about 1989, I think we've got to be a bit careful not to over-Europeanize. Um, yeah. Now, one of the consequences, and this brings me then into the question of interpretation, one of the con I think the two big consequences I want to argue about the end of the Cold War the first thing it did, it produced what I call a new, I, I, I kind of can't think of the word exactly, but so I've called it archivitis, archivitis, it's a kind of disease. <laughs> um, suddenly, and you can imagine why, you can imagine why, for, for 40 odd years, we were bereft really of serious archives as historians to look at, particularly the other side's archives. It's not to say that our archives were always open, they weren't, and they still aren't. But there was this sense that the other side would now reveal the facts, would open up the archives. The Russians would do it, the Poles, the Hungarians, obviously there was a massive opening of archives in East Germany, particularly on revealing enormous amounts about the nature of the East German state. Historians could now begin to operate, not on a living thing, which was still going on, but on a dead corpse. You know, you could dissect it, you could pull it apart, you could start to look at it, you could look into the inner, into the inner being of the beast, if you want to call it, and the inner beast of the body. You could now operate on the corpse. Um, you know, the thing was over, and in, in, in classical sense, I suppose you could say that once... The, the, owl of, the owl of Minerva has flown, as Hegel once put it. Once the owl of Minerva has flown, you can now begin to understand the thing. You can only understand the thing at the end of the thing. That was the point that was made. And of course, more practically, at the end of the thing, with the death of the process, the death of the whole system, you could now begin to look inside those archives. 
And indeed, it is fair to say that a, you know, very large numbers of scholars, backed by a number of foundations, mainly American, but not only, but that's not, that's not to me, a major problem. It doesn't, doesn't really bother me that much where the money comes from, although I think it does make a difference in some ways, basically began to find the Russian archives. They began to dig deeply into those East European archives, particularly the, uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center, which has a marvelous Cold War uh, study program, which has gone on for the last 20 years. I know most of the people involved in that. Now, they're wonderful guys. They're great historians. They travel the world digging up archives. I have somebody who is never at home, and if you ever ask him where he was last, he's always in Kazakhstan. I found this really great archive. Um, his name, by the way, is James Hirschberg. I, I can name him, a very good friend of mine. But I said to Jim one day, I said, Jim, you, you do suffer from this problem called archivitis. You've got it very badly. He said, yes, but once I get into those archives, I can find out the real facts, what really happened. And now, I, I make this point. I make this point because the archives, in a sense, became now the way of really defining the Cold War in, in a really more crucial way than ever before. There was serious uncertainty before, and we could have what I would call great debates. Now it seemed that we could have greater historical certainty because now we had this enormous amount of flowing of information. It wasn't perfect information. Many of these archives were never fully open, and the Russians increasingly in the 1990s got very tough on opening up their archives. And I think this, this process of archive, what I call archivology or archivitis, this is a kind of new disease, I suppose, reached its apogee, reached its climax with the publication of a particularly influential book in 1997 by the doyen of Cold War historians in the United States, John Lewis Gaddis. And he wrote a very interesting book, or I think a deeply flawed book, called We Now Know. We Now Know. Now, I don't think any you know, historian normally would say we now know, but you know, he was quite clear, we now know. Why, what do we now know? We now know who caused the Cold War, what the Cold War was really about. Why do we know? Because we got the, we got the facts from the other side. Now, of course, John, John Gaddis, again, a very nice man, and in, in many ways a very, very good historian, no doubt about that, great writer, uh, moving more, more and more, I think, to a conservative position. Of course, on the back of all this, he kind of came to the conclusion that we now know, of course, it was Russia who started this Cold War, and that J.V. Stalin was the key figure in all of this. But more than that, what, what, what Gaddis, I think, was saying is we now know. We now know the facts have, in a sense, spoken for themselves. We don't need a lot of theory. We don't need a lot of theory and interpretive stuff because we've now got an accumulated set of empirical data uh, which now shows, in, you know, almost incontrovertibly, uh, you know, how the Cold War began and who effectively was the main cause of that. Now, again, uh, without dropping too many names, I'm sorry, I, I get even worse than that. I notice I get older. So there you go. Um, a wonderful Norwegian historian, and why Norway keeps producing great Cold War historians, Arne Westad is one, of course, but the other one who Arne worked with for many years is the director of the Nobel Institute, Geir Lundestad. And Geir made the point to me once, and I think it was a very good point, he said, you know, Mickey said, we know more and more about the Cold War, but we conceptualize less and less. We conceptualize less and less about... It is almost as if we think, the, as I came, my archivitis argument, we know more... But in a sense, we conceptualize less. We think less. We try and theorize less. In other words, we think less and less like social scientists about this phenomenon because we think the archives have now solved these problems. As John Lewis Gaddis put it, we now know. This, I think, brings me to the, what, I think the, what I call the second consequence, and it's a connected issue. 
about the end of the Cold War and its impact on our thinking about it, I think it actually increased the divide between historians of the Cold War and social science in general. I think that's implicit in what I've already begun to say. I think it did, it did, you know, we know more as historians, but we conceptualize less. There's less we need to draw from theories of the Cold War and that kind of great debates that we had in a previous, a previous epoch. Now, of course, it is fair to say that the relationship between historians and the social scientists, and I can say that at the LSE, I hope, anyway, has never been a happy one. It's never been a happy relationship. Um, it, maybe it should be a happier relationship, perhaps it should be a better marriage, I don't know. Uh, but I think what, it had never been a good one. I mean, I think, you know, put it rather bluntly, I think historians do think in different ways uh, to social scientists overall, most historians. I think they do. They look for the specific, they look for the contingent, they look for the, for the unique, whereas I think social scientists are looking for the general, they're looking for generalized theories. And I, I think, therefore, one of my PhD students said to me this very, very well the other day, and, and we, you know, I didn't dispute with him, but he said, I come from history. He's doing a PhD in the IR department. I come from history, and what we're interested in is the specificity, the unique, the moment. And you can't generalize from that. We're not looking for general causes like you social scientists, you damn theorists. We are looking for something specific. We're looking for that particular moment. And that is what is the humane within the historical profession. That is what is humane within the historical profession, this notion that each individual and each moment in time has its own specificity. So the, the relationship had never been good. I think it now became even more problematic when thinking about the, about the Cold War. I was reminded of this when I did a, some volumes on uh, international re relations of the 20th century, and uh, I'm a great fan of musicals. Uh, and that's one thing I think I share with Sir Howard Davis, who's also another great fan of musicals. And there's a great, there's a great musical by Rodgers and Hammerstein called Oklahoma. I even know most of the songs to it, but I won't sing any of them at the moment, so you can, be, you can uh, you know, stay in your seats. And there's one, great, there's one great little song in it, which is about cowboys and farmers. About cowboys and farmers, and I won't sing it, but basically it goes, why can't the cowboys and the farmers always be friends? One man milks a cow with ease, the other one steals his butter and cheese, but that's no reason why they can't be friends. In other words, what it, it, you might almost call it the class struggle on the, on the, on, in the Midwest, between the cowboys in the sense, you know, have cattle and you know, want open spaces, and farmers who want closed spaces as farmers. And I think actually the relationship between historians and social scientists in general, and historians and social scientists talking in the post-Cold War period, is a bit like our cowboys and farmers. You know, they should be friends, but they aren't really. They should be friends, but they ain't really. Um, the point that I want to make, and you won't be surprised to hear me making, and I think it's a very unnecessary divide, um, and I think also it's a, it's a dangerous divide. It's a dangerous divide. I just don't see how one can be a good social scientist without your history. Mm. And I frankly don't know how you can be a good historian without some abstract theorizing. So I think, therefore, you know, even if Rogers and Hammerstein couldn't get the cowboys and the farmers to be friends, perhaps that's one of the things I want to do here uh, this afternoon, even if I'm not going to sing it. Let me raise then uh, in the next, uh, say, few minutes, George, about where I think social science, why social scientists should be interested in the Cold War, and reversing it, why the Cold War historians should be interested in social sciences. I think this, I, I've, I could talk about this you know, much longer than I've got, but let me just 
outline a few areas where I think the conceptualization, generalization, theorization, dare I say, has much to contribute to the way historians might want to think about the Cold War, and maybe some of them do. They certainly used to, and perhaps they ought to once again. Firstly, in terms of simply the question of the origins of the Cold War, thinking about that, back at the end of the back at the end of World War II after 1945. Now, of course, you can write, you can write this as a series of events, and indeed there's a massive literature about the origins of the Cold War in France, in Germany, in the United States, the Soviet Union, you know, one, if you like, one event after another, one damn fact after another. Who did what? And more and more archives, of course, add to that feeling of, you know, a chronology, telling a good story telling a good story. And I'm, I'm entirely in favour of telling a very good story. And the more accurate, the more complete, the more dense, the more rich, the more colours in that story, the better, and much of that will come from the archives. That's no question about that. But there's no question either, and I think this is where maybe historians do miss the point, or some of them at least, this is also this is occurring in something we can't see. This is occurring within something we can't see, which is the international system. It's occurring within a larger international system. It's occurring within a structure of power. It's occurring within a wider global environment which becomes defined as a bipolar world order. And I think without kind of, if you, if you get that series of events and don't lock it into and don't locate it within a larger conception of the international, the international system, which is not something you can see. <laughs> it's not something you, it's in the archives. Bipolarity is not in the archives. Mm. <laughs> you won't find it in any archive. You won't find it as an event. You won't find it as a speech act. You won't find it as a narrative. You won't find it as a diplomatic note. But it is there structuring these events. Mm. And it is this emerging international order which both produces, as Hans J. Morgenthau said at the time, both conflict and order, which in a sense does define partly what I think of the Cold War as being, a system of conflict which grows out of the bipolar order at the end of World War II, a system of conflict which in itself produces a new form of order. And I think we need to think more in those terms about that, and I don't think historians have done so. Secondly, I think there's the question of the continuity of the Cold War. And again, this is something we can, we can raise in the, in, the, in the Q&A, George, but there are many ways of thinking about why it lasted so long. But one social science concept, which in a sense was... Um, you know, emerged in the debates in the 1950s on this issue was the notion of a security dilemma. Now, in most of the historical accounts, you won't find this terminology, security dilemma. You know, you will find, you'll, you will find, you will find the events, you will find the facts. What is the security dilemma? And this was de developed by a, by a very, very wonderful writer in international relations called John Hertz. John Hertz, he said, basically the security dilemma is essentially about this. It is that how I create the conditions of my own security I create the conditions of my own security, in a sense, by doing two things. One, uh, building up my own military capacity, and two, creating my own system of alliances. I'm doing this for my own security. It's not threatening to anybody except the other side, who then seeing this build-up of other people's security, they say, oh, what they perceive to be defensive, I perceive to be offensive. Therefore, I have to take the necessary measures to regain my security in order, therefore, to defend against this aggressive action which they have defined in different ways. I then build up my capacities, my alliances. What does that do? It makes the other side feel insecure. 
And it therefore creates what Hart's called, and many others have thought about in terms of the long Cold War, the security dilemma. And as long as you had that, you couldn't escape it. Because in a sense you had an action-reaction play throughout the whole period of the 50s, 60s, 70s. You needed somebody to come along, in a sense, to break, to break that. And of course, this was Mikhail Gorbachev's great contribution to international relations. He actually understood, if, if as a Soviet leader, if not as a social scientist, that until you broke out of that security dilemma, you couldn't bring it to an end. But I think he was well aware of this notion of a security dilemma. In a sense, he may have even drawn from social science thinking about the continuity of the Cold War and how you could break the back of it and how you can, in a sense, derail it. Nothing you could do until you got out of that could bring us to anything close to, to, to an ending of that. I think there's also another area which I've been interested in for some time, and as people know, I'm probably not known as a postmodernist around the LSE, but I think postmodernists, some, some aspects of postmodernist thinking have contributed to this. And one of the things I've thought about for some time is this whole question of imaging. Imaging. How do we construct the image of the other through the Cold War? The perceptions, if you like, and that, in a sense, forms part of two points together, but I'll treat them as one. There's an extraordinary aspect about the Cold War, how we image the other side. How, in a sense, to use a postmodernist language, how we othered the other. How did the other emerge, and why did that other remain a particular kind of other throughout the Cold War? And this is a very, very interesting question, because, again, this is not about facts alone. It isn't about, you know, no, you know, this is not in the archives. You won't find this in the archives. There's nothing, nothing there that's going to help you think about this, but it's so central to thinking about how the Cold War continued. Actually, one of the people who got this and understood this, I think, very early on, was one of the, the author of Containment Doctrine, George Kennan. Kennan got it. He said, actually, we both need em enemy images for ourselves. We both need em enemy images for our own purposes. It is much easier, in a sense, to construct American power and American foreign policy with a clear enemy image. In the same way, he argued, it is, much, it is actually quite functional for a Stalinist system to have an enemy image of the West. In, in other words, what he's getting into here is, is a whole area of social science theorization about legitimation. What creates the conditions of legitimacy for systems in, from, an, from the international perspective? And it's not just an economic, in a sense, it derives through this process of othering and, and, and the enemy images. And there's also been, by the way, from social science, quite a lot of writing on this whole question of perception, of misperception. And one of the things that comes out of that social science literature, and again, it mainly comes out of those social scientists who are interested in history, is... Why is it that we had worst-case analysis in the Cold War? Now, again, now if you talk to policymakers, or you talk, for instance, to you know what I call standard historian. I don't want to be too unfair on historians. I've been pretty unfair so far. So, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. But um, what what was the sourcing of worst-case analysis? Where did it come from? You know, wh why did we have to have worst-case analysis? Why indeed did we have to have the Soviet Union as strong as we, we thought it was? at the time. Now, was this simply based on the facts? Well, as we know in the Iraq war, what drives policy? Is it the intelligence we have which then drives the policy, or is it the policies we have which then drives the intelligence? And in a way, when listening to all this discussion about the Iraq war and the relationship between policy on the one side and, and intelligence on the other and what drives the other, in a way, this is very much an old Cold War story. It's very much an old Cold War story. And it has to do with worst-case analysis. 
And that kind of worst case scenario, now where did that come from? It's quite, I'm very interesting on the Soviet side where it came from, but it's equally important to you know, deconstruct why on the other side we have these forms of worst case analysis. Now this not only has some very, very important theoretical implications, why we always had to believe the worst of the enemy. Now some have argued, of course, it's because people identified the Soviet Union as Nazi Germany. Uh, you know, Stalin was simply a new Hitler. There was the kind of the learning the wrong lessons of history approach to thinking about that. Or there's a kind of a larger argument, of course, about the functional necessity of worst-case analysis. But again, that I think is an important area of thinking about how psychology and social psychology, and that has contributed quite enormously, I think, to discussions about this. And the final point I want to make, George, and I will end here, in the sense I, I, I kind of want to open up for some, for some discussion, is when we come to the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War, to me, is a wonderful case study of thinking about how we should really understand crucial events in the world. It really is a terrific case study, going, thinking about what happens from 85 through to Gorbachev's UN speech in December, through to what happened in 1989. Now, of course, we can tell it as a story. And the best story we can tell, the better. I'm perfectly happy with that. And archives have made a terrific contribution to, to knowing what really happened on both sides in that period. I mean, this has been a fantastic area of historical richness. You see, I'm not trying to get away from the archives. But the question is, you've still got to kind of rise above and start thinking about some pretty big, big larger social science questions. Firstly, about prediction. Mm. Why did the experts get it wrong? There's a big problem. There's a big problem there. Why did nearly all the experts fail to anticipate what turned out to be the most important event of the late 20th century? Big question. Secondly, causation. What caused it? Now, a simple answer is, well, what is the simple answer? I don't know. You know, I mean, it, you get into enormous debate about the causation issue. Was it to do with material factors, economic decline of Russia? Was it to do with American foreign policy? Was it to do with the long-term detente in Europe, the breaking down of barriers in the 1970s? Did Ostpolitik between the two Germanys contribute to this, or did it hold the process up? You know, there's a deep set of issues here about causation, which I think we need both the historian's archives and the social sciences sensibility to try and bring the two, the two together. And of course, it does in the end raise one final question, which of course the historians will love. And this is the big problem for the social sciences, the role of the individual. The role of the individual, you know, whichever set of structural analysis you may arrive at in thinking about the end of the Cold War, you really can't get away from Gorbachev. Mm. You know, you may try your damnedest to think of deep structural reasons. I've read thousands of articles about the impact of globalization, imperial overstretch, Soviet economic decline, etc. Why Eastern Europe was a burden on the Soviet economy, which it was increasingly becoming. Without Gorbachev, do you get it? <laughs> do you get what you ended up with in, in, in 1989? And I think that, in a sense, maybe drink, brings all these things together. The, you know, social scientists should be interested in the Cold War. Cold War can obviously draw very deeply from the social sciences. We need to be farmers and cowboys working together in the field or on the range or wherever, whatever metaphor you want. But nonetheless, we still get back to this wonderful point at the end of this whole process we call the Cold War, that without a key individual, uh, the end of the Cold War may not have happened. And maybe this is where the historians have their last laugh on us social scientists. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks.
Thank you, Mick, for a wonderfully rich talk, which obviously everybody uh, enjoyed very much. We don't have an enormous amount of time, but we do have a few minutes if there are reactions or questions or points that you would like to contest or raise further. So, sure. uh, there's a one in the suit just over here. Yeah, sure, please, sir. I'm interested in your point about prediction and mm. anticipation. Was it unexpected because of the role of Gorbachev, which is inherently, yeah. I guess, uh, if it's an individual, it's unpredictable? Yeah. Or do you think there are other lessons? And if so, does it help our powers of anticipation for what might be coming up in decades to come? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, there, there, are, there of course, is a whole branch of social sciences that say, you know, prediction is impossible. You know, if, you, if you believe in chaos theory, uh, I, was just, I was listening to a whole analysis on chaos theory the other day, and even posing the possibility of prediction looks nonsensical. So, you know, a lot of people simply chuck it out anyway, social scientists and whomever. Um, I'm interested in it for the very simple reason, um, partly because I've got so much wrong, and if I keep getting the future wrong, there must be something wrong with my theory. I mean, I, you know, I'm rather crude about that. I'm a little bit reductionist. I mean, and, and it does seem to be inherent in any decent theory of the world, there's got to be some anticipation of where that world is moving. And anyway, we all do prediction. We all do prediction. Even if we predict the same, we're, predict we're making a prediction. And that's the point about the end of the Cold War. Nearly all the theories of the Cold War did have a theory of prediction, but it was a theory of continuity. It would go on. It would go on for a series of reasons. The Soviet Union was too strong. Um, NATO, how can you get rid of the Warsaw Pact? The Russians will never allow a united Germany. So there's those kind of issues. The Soviet Union always expands. That was built into our theories of the Soviet foreign policy. It will never retreat. But I do think there's a deeper question is group, what I call groupthink. It is very difficult out, you know, within organisations to think outside certain kinds of ways of thinking about certain ways to think about the world. Uh, for one thing, you lose your pension. And secondly, most people think you're mad. And it's even got, John Gaddis put it rather wonderfully in 1989. If somebody had said in 1985 or 1986, by the way, I think the Cold War may come to an end, that person would have been marginalised. Mm. So, in fact, the people who actually did get it right were the marginal people. Mm. You know, it was, it, was the margin, it was the marginal intellectuals in the debate, both on the right and on some parts of the left, who anticipated the possibility that the system may come to an end. But, no, I, I think it does raise a much bigger question about about the future, but I, I, I simply get back, I do think of decent social science without some notion, some probability about where we are heading. Without that, I do think, you know, we are, we are lesser as social scientists. Remember what the Queen said when she came to the LSE, why didn't you predict the crisis? A wonderful question. <laughs> it's not a bad question. If we can't at least provide some answers to those difficult questions, then I think, you know, well, we should be paid, but maybe we, we shouldn't lose our pension. <laughs> but uh, I think it does, we shouldn't have our heads cut off either. But I do think it makes some problems for us, yeah. It's time for a couple more. There's one over here. James, you got... Uh, James Woodhausen. Yeah, Mick, fantastic tour d'horizon. You've l lost none of your sparkle since I saw you 20 years ago. Um, gained some, I would say. I, I, I just wanted to say that the, the question of the third world, for me, has always been one of a place where capitalism was weakest and uh, therefore the potential for conflict there uh, and the potential for large-scale death given the underdevelopment there was always, for me, fairly explicable in that context. I think for today's debate, um, the, your call for a social science approach to these historical issues I think is right because uh, what strikes me about the first world component of the 
Cold War's origins is you had an elite which was fundamentally delegitimized by the Nazi experience. Mm. That, the, that capitalism had a very bad name by 1945 mm. and the desire to um, retain domestic cohesion and legitimacy through the discovery of the other, as you rather too postmodernly, for my taste, uh, put it. But I think that uh, legitimacy crisis and the culture of fear is something that actually, no, uh, I think you're wrong on specificity. I value the specificity of historians. I think there's a new specific culture of fear and legitimacy crisis today. But I think that it's worth looking back at the old post-war one on the domestic side. I, I could go into much. I, mean, I wrote a very, 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 very long article, which was part of a critique of Fred Halliday in 1982 in an extremely left-wing journal. Um, Therefore, not RAEable. There you go. Um, and, and my point was more or less precisely that. That in, in some senses, we've kind of got to move away from narrative studies about the Cold War and think about it in some larger historical context. And my, my argument was, I think you may have actually partly repeated it, maybe you read the article in the first place, was there was effectively a, a fundamental crisis of capitalism. And that in some very ironic and deeply profoundly paradoxical way, the Cold War restored the legitimacy of post-war capitalism. Um, and it did so in many, many interesting ways. And I, I kind of, it will take me much longer to go into that question. But in a sense, the other, and I won't be too postmodern on this, the other becomes the mode by which the market and capitalism reproduces and re-legitimizes itself after, post, after the post-Second World War. In that ironic sense, and Brzezinski made this point many times. He said, thank God for Stalinism. Thank God for the Soviet Union. It's the best argument for market capitalism that there's been. And in that sense, that's the historic irony of the Cold War, that it appears to be a conflict between social systems. That's Fred Halliday's point. But my point against Fred, of course, was always that this conflict between social systems in itself helps pro the processes of re-legitimization, particularly the Western capitalist model, and does so very successfully. Yeah, thanks for that, Jim. And thank you for the compliment, by the way. And I'm still glad I'm still sparkling in the early 60s. That's good. <laughs> I fear, Mick, that we're going to have to draw it to a close okay. because people are going to come in and they need to go elsewhere. Okay. Um, I should say that the next talk in this series is by George Gaskell next week on cultures of risk. Um, so uh, please do come along for that as well. I hope that you've enjoyed this fantastically rich uh, presentation that Mick has uh, given to us today and that whether you're a cowboy or, or a farmer or whatever it is that you'll take issues of the Cold War seriously and try and take issues of history and social science equally importantly on your own topic. Just leaves me to thank you for coming and thank Mick once again for his talk. Thank you very much.